All right, I have really been looking forward to this episode. Um, and there was so much more in it than I had really planned. Beth and I talked for a really long time. And ultimately, I had to decide to turn it into two episodes. So this release is part one. Um, it's coming out December 2023. And the second half is going to be January 2024's episode. Um, I hope you really enjoy it. I really enjoyed the conversation. Hopefully it helps you to think very differently about fad diets um, and from a very different perspective than you've probably heard about this topic before. Um, one really notable thing is Beth always surprises me. I mean, friends with her on Facebook, I see different things about her and it's just, she's not who I expect sometimes when I see her in trainings um, and getting to know her on Facebook has been fun. But one of the most fun things that I've learned about Beth, and she gave me permission to share this, <laughs> she used to do roller derby. I've attached this video from YouTube from the Women's Flat Track Derby Association um, to give you some background if you don't know what it is, but it is a full contact sport. Roller Derby is played in increments called jams. Each jam lasts up to two minutes. Both teams field up to five skaters at the start of the jam. Four of these skaters are called blockers and one is called the jammer. The jammer wears a helmet cover with a star on it and scores points for the team. The blockers are playing both offense and defense at the same time and together they make up what is called the pack. The two jammers start each jam behind the pack and must get through all of these skaters for an initial pass before they can begin to score points. When the initial pass is complete, a jammer can score one point for every opponent they pass with their hips. The first jammer out of the pack legally is declared lead jammer, which means they can end the jam anytime they want before the two minutes are up. Sounds easy, right? As a reminder, make sure you subscribe so that you can catch part two. Hopefully you join us next month. This is the Facts of Life, where research-based knowledge from the failing consumer sciences is brought to you with life applications. I'm your host, Amanda Harner. I'm Hope Smith, a 4-H educator and the graphic guru of the pod. Our guest today is registered dietitian, assistant nutrition educator, and program coordinator for UGA Extension, Beth Oshea Kindemo. And these are the facts on Fad Diets Part 1. We had talked, I feel like it was a few months ago, about like, the idea to do a show together with fad diets. And it's one that I've been looking to the most out of some of the other shows that we were doing. Um, partly because like, this is an area that is of a lot of interest to me. I, I mean, my background is nutrition and um, cross-cultural studies. And so all those pieces and how they fit into this topic are of a lot of interest. Um, and then I know it's something that you're very interested in and work with a lot because um, you're a registered dietitian. And why don't you kind of recap a little bit like what your role is with UGA and um, like 
your role as a registered dietitian, both like, I guess, prior to UG and, and currently, because you still work as a RD. Yes. Yeah, okay. that's correct. Yeah. All right. Thanks, Amanda. Thank you um, for having me on the podcast. I've been really excited about it since we talked about it a few months ago. And and I think something that we had in common in talking about it was just how much misinformation or distortion of information can really be out there on nutrition. And that can just be so disempowering um, when people are trying to take an active role in developing a healthful lifestyle um, to have someone kind of swoop in and say, well, that's wrong, that's wrong, that's wrong. You know, it's so easy to hear, hear a no <laughs> or, or things like that from different perspectives. So, um, you know, one thing you'll probably hear over and over from me today is, and, and in general, um, is that there's really no one size fits all plan that's going to be optimal for everybody. Like I heard you just mention um, your background in like cross-cultural studies, which I think is, is such an important thing to be thinking about in terms of nutrition. Um, you know, we know that two people can be the same age, have identical eating habits, identical exercise habits, but those two people are still going to inhabit two bodies with differing appearances. So especially now in the age where we're communicating so much with social media and influencers and you know, look at what I look like and here's what I eat in a day. Um, that's something that can just really get very um, loaded very, very quickly. Um, so going back to um, my background, so I'm a registered dietitian nutritionist. All right. You may be wondering what the difference between a registered dietitian and a nutritionist actually is. First of all, nutritionist is a very broad term. In fact, legally, Anybody can actually refer to themselves as a nutritionist, whether they have training in this area or not. This essentially means that you can have situations where you have PhDs who have dedicated their entire lives to the study of nutrition. They never became a registered dietitian. They have all this nutrition training. They contribute to research, all these things, and they refer to themselves as nutritionists. Well, at the same time, you can have someone who read a book or took some random sketchy class with some life coach no one's really heard of, and they could feel that they are a nutrition expert and refer to themselves as a nutritionist. So if you're dealing with someone who refers to themselves as a nutritionist, it's in your best interest to find out what their training actually is. Is it from a university? Or is it from some book? A registered dietitian, on the other hand, is a type of nutritionist, but they are considered a medical professional. It is actually illegal for anyone to refer to themselves as a registered dietitian unless they actually have the credential to do so. So what are those credentials? The requirements to become a registered dietitian in the United States include completing a bachelor's degree in an accredited dietetics program. As of January 1st, 2024, it will be a requirement to have a master's degree. You have to have completed at least a thousand hours of supervised practice. You, in some states, have to obtain licensure um, if your state requires you to have a license to practice. But in all states, you have to have passed a dietetics exam. It's a national exam. You have to earn 
a certain amount of continuing education every five-year cycle, and you commit to following a code of ethics specific to the dietetics profession. That's the difference. Um, I really, I took an interest in dietetics initially um, from a public health lens as we were, um, you know, having this shift over time to where chronic illnesses have played so much larger of a role than um, infectious uh, illnesses, which, of course, this was before the COVID-19 pandemic. According to the CDC, chronic illnesses or chronic diseases are defined broadly as conditions that last one year or more and require ongoing medical attention or limit activities of daily living or both. Chronic diseases such as heart disease, cancer, and diabetes are the leading causes of death and disability in the United States. They are also leading drivers of the nation's $4.1 trillion in annual healthcare costs. So, of course, that, that sort of, you know, switched around for a while. But um, knowing the important role nutrition can play in preventing and managing chronic illnesses and, and that it also impacts how we feel in the short, short term, so just day to day, like our cognition, our mood, our memory, maybe like physical strength, um, how much energy we have throughout the day to dedicate to the things that are important to us. Um, so I feel like, you know, it's so important on a, a macro and a micro sort of scale. Um, and no matter what your perspective is, I think you can find something very interesting about nutrition. And we haven't even gotten to that kind of cultural and emotional aspect of food. Um, we're talking about nutrition more in like a functional kind of lens so far. Um, so I've been a registered dietitian nutritionist for about 12 years, which is seems like a long time, but it's gone by pretty fast. Um, I've worked yeah. <laughs> Time, time sir flies, maybe not, you know, what they say, the, the days are long, but the years are short. Um, so I have worked in a few different settings. And I think those things, as I talk with other people about nutrition, um, definitely color how I think about things and how I communicate about things. So mm -hmm. um, my longest stint was in clinical nutrition at Athens Regional Medical Center, which is now Piedmont Athens Regional. Um, so if you can think of a reason for somebody to be in the hospital, I've probably worked with someone with that condition. Um, so I was there for about seven years and I um, ended up the last few years, I worked in nutrition support, which is kind of a more specialized area um, where we're utilizing parenteral nutrition, which is um, nutrition through an IV access when people can't utilize their gastrointestinal tract or um, Enteral nutrition, which people would recognize as like tube feeding when people can't maybe swallow or part of their GI tract is compromised for some reason. Um, so I have a pretty strong background there in clinical nutrition um, and GI health and things like that. And then after I um, finished up working at, at Piedmont Athens Regional, I worked over at the University of Georgia Health Center for a few years and I worked mostly with students. Um, and a lot of the people that were accessing nutrition services through our health center um, were impacted by eating disorders or disordered eating. Mm -hmm. So what we think of as something that maybe didn't didn't qualify as a clinical diagnosis for an eating disorder, but were having negative impacts or ramifications on that person's life or health. Right. Um, so because that was so prevalent in that population, um, that really tends to be top of mind to me when we're communicating about nutrition. Um, and I don't always think I do a great job of it either. 
it because that wasn't it's hard it is it's hard there's always something that we can be more aware of or communicate better and 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 learning from other people and 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 their perspectives really deepens you know how we can do that ourselves um but you know thinking about what we're saying or what we're not saying and the importance of how we communicate about food and our bodies you know not calling things good or bad or or whatnot right. um but to bring to my current role in UGA Extension, um, I'm the coordinator for our diabetes prevention program. So I feel really fortunate um, that I get to kind of know and work with like all the locals, aka all of our agents and educators and other faculty and staff throughout the state on on various um, chronic disease prevention programs. Awesome. Yeah. I like, I don't think I realized that um, part of your time clinically was working with people who like had feeding tubes and stuff like that. Like, mm -hmm. it makes me wonder how that shapes some of this conversation for you. Hmm. That's a great question. Um, I mean, I think on one hand, I do feel like that gave me a, a much stronger understanding of how the human body works and what's actually happening at different parts of our um, digestion and uh, that kind of metabolic process. So I think knowledge-wise, that definitely was an enhancement for me. Um, of course, talking about the experiences of other people um, and learning from our patients or our clients. I mean, you know, I encountered so many different people and lots of folks that made a, a big impact on my on my life long term. Um, and there are definitely even some privileges in thinking about, you know, making food choices um, or what mm -hmm. autonomy we have to um, choose certain foods or, um, you know, thinking about how how an illness or, or chronic condition might impact um, what we can eat, when we can eat. Um, how our body reacts to what we're eating or what our body might look like or feel like. Um, and that just all really speaks to just that complexity <laughs> of our relationship with food that we might not otherwise think about. Um, and how, yeah. you know, we know things like the brain and the GI tract are really interconnected and, um, you know, the impact of, of various stressors and, and experiences that people can have and how that, that impacts their, their relationship with food. Yeah. So I feel like that's a good kind of a launching point to kind of dive in. Because <laughs> um, I think the more that I've thought about this subject uh, of fad diet specifically, um, with the work that I'm doing now, with my personal experiences, with um, what I've seen other people kind of deal with and live through, um, it it is such a big thing to unpack. <laughs> but the more that I think about it, it's like at the bottom of it, I really think part of what has to shape the conversation is understanding what is our definition of health? Because ultimately, um, there's a couple things going on with fad diets, right? For the most part, most people um, are gravitating towards a fad diet because they're focused on weight loss. Um, that's not always the case. I mean, 
I would argue that there are some things out there that like weight loss may be a part of the picture, but people are also maybe gravitating towards some things that become fad diet ish if they don't really have like a condition of some kind and they're trying it out and there's like this underlying, maybe I'll lose weight on top of it kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, so um, there's, I feel like the, the conversation of bad diets has also gotten more complicated. Um, so let's start with, from our perspective, <laughs> as experts in nutrition and um, especially your perspective as somebody who's worked clinically with people who really are struggling with some of these things, um, what, what will we consider healthy? Yeah, that's a really loaded question. Right? Right. <laughs> so health, I mean, you know, going back to that idea, I mean, enjoying health and is a privilege and it's not a privilege that everybody has, you know, so we don't, necessarily want to say that somebody who is enjoying better health is better or worse than somebody who is not enjoying as as strong a health um, status at the time. You know, we know health is going to change over the course of a lifespan. Um, Mm -hmm. And we know nutrition is important throughout the lifespan, you know, from when we're, you know, in the womb (laughs) to our our older age. but coming back to that idea of like defining what healthy is, I think that has to be something that's going to be pretty individual to every person and, and what their kind of baseline is and, and what they're dealing with. You know, we use the word healthy, you know, just describing a food as healthy. Like um, it's like we use it so often that there's just no meaning left to it. And depending, you know, if you're somebody who's in a, a different um, kind of camp of different uh, nutrition perspectives or fad diets or whatnot, um, you could think that, you know, the the healthiest thing ever is unhealthy based on whatever kind of set of rules and parameters you might be using. You know, I was um, I feel like beans and lentils are like one of the most nutritious, healthiest foods out there. You know, I almost feel like how can you even argue against um, consuming um, beans or lentils? But there are people who are like right. That's awful for you, you know. Um, so, you know, we use that as such a generic word. So. Uh, you know, I really prescribe to this line of thinking that there's a lot of gray areas in nutrition. There's not a lot of, you know, binary as in like yes, no, or dichotomous type of answers. Mm-hmm. And and so a lot of the time, you know, the answer will be like, it depends. Um, or, you know, I know that's annoying. <laughs> it can be really annoying. Yeah. Hear. It depends all the time. But I think if you interviewed a lot of dietitians, you'd probably get a lot of that. Well, it depends. Or there'd be the long answer instead of the short answer. Um, So kind of describing those foods or habits as healthy or unhealthy, you know, I try and think about it in a more descriptive way, like really thinking about what we're, what we're really intending to say when we're using the word healthy, kind of like, you know, when you were in fourth grade and your teacher said, you know, don't use the word good, use a more descriptive word, you know, healthy is kind of like using the word good, I guess. Um, So sometimes it might work to think about something being like more nutritious or less nutritious. So like when we think mm-hmm. about nutrient dense foods that might have a lot of vitamins and minerals without a lot of added sodium or saturated fat or sugar, um, you know, is something healthy, like because it has calories um, or because it doesn't, is something healthy when it provides 
no calories? Um, you know, what nutrients is that food providing? Um, and, and that even will get you into little pickles here and there, right? So if you're thinking, yeah. all right, more nutrients, like, okay, well, a soda, you know, just a regular old can of soda is going to provide some nutrients in the form of carbohydrate and mm-hmm. a water doesn't. So does that make soda more nutritious than water? Not necessarily. So I think anytime we, we get into these little places where we're, we're working according to certain rules, it can be um, pretty hard to define that. Um, yeah. Yeah. I think nutrition is a good place where it's, it really is important to say you have to take everything in context of the whole picture. Like mm-hmm. you really can't throw the baby out with the bathwater anywhere. <laughs> yeah. Um, because it is complicated. I mean, the reality is our brain functions primarily off of like sugars, but the more that they're studying how sugars affect the brain, like they're learning new things. I mean, it's, there are different chemical structures of sugars. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. And we don't fully understand how those different chemical structures impact the body and it could impact one organ differently than another organ. We don't fully understand all of that. What we do know mm-hmm. is like, it maybe stops here, but there may be a wealth more to learn. Um, and I love that you hit on um, the nutritious thing. Cause we tried to explain, I-, I tend to gravitate more towards like, I don't really like to use the word healthy to describe food. I prefer to say, um, and this is totally a preference. I, I prefer to go the route of like what you were saying with, um, what's the nutritional quality of the food and is it going to produce the health, that health outcome that I want? Mm -hmm. Um, because like when I think of health, it's like, it's more of an outcome, Um, the world health organization does have a really good, like kind of overall definition. What I like about it is there leaves enough room for it to be individual. Um, but also gives enough parameters to kind of say, okay, that makes, that makes sense as an aim. Yeah. Yeah, I love that. I think that's a great, a great definition and really also speaks to the interconnectedness, um, of just like, you know, world security and peace and, you know, global well-being too. Yeah. So why don't you read the definition for us? Sure. Um, so, you know, different organizations have um, different definitions, but a definition um, that the World Health Organization uses is that health is a state of complete physical, mental, and social well-being, and not merely the absence of disease or infirmity. So as we talked about a, a moment ago, you know, health will change over the lifespan. Um They say the enjoyment of the highest attainable standard of health is one of the fundamental rights of every human being um, without distinction of race, religion, political belief, economic or social condition. And finally, that the health of all peoples is fundamental to the attainment of peace and security and is dependent on the fullest cooperation of individuals and states. And so states, I think, being, you know, governments and countries in this context for the World Health Organization. Yeah. And I really like the highest, the statement at the highest attainable, because like you were saying earlier, like 
the fact of the matter is, is there are people um, who are born into different conditions who could encounter different conditions throughout their life where like um, they're the, the highest level attainable to them is just not going to be what it is for another individual because they just might be lacking something mm-hmm. um, that prevents that from even happening. I feel like I'm always adjusting in this here. Really <laughs> well, you know, we always got to adjust. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, people have, have differing baselines of health and, and, and yeah, what, what is, um, we, we can't all judge ourselves based on the one person who enjoys the highest, um, the privilege of like the most health. Um, right. We're going to do ourselves a disservice at that point. You know, I, I think, Something that I think is great is that these days, I think there is a lot more understanding culturally, especially from from the younger generations, too. And and from my perspective, and I have, you know, the limitations of my own perspective and identities, like I'm a cisgendered, white, hetero, female identifying person in my 40s. So everybody might not have the same perspective. Um, but that health is really multifactorial and it's not just physical, just like we were talking about that World Health Organization definition includes yeah. um, physical, mental and social well-being. Um, and so, you know, if anybody's a Parks and Rec fan, you know that sometimes you got to treat yourself. Um, <laughs> oh, one, two, one, two. Donatella T-Mobile. Three words for you. Treat yourself. Treat yourself 2011. Once a year, Donna and I spend a day treating ourselves. What do we treat ourselves to? Clothes. Treat yourself. Fragrances. Treat yourself. Massages. Treat yourself. Mimosas. Treat yourself. Fine leather goods. Treat yourself. It's the best day of the year. The best day of the year. And that's important (laughs) for our health at points too, right? And our well-being. Um, But if you're always treating yourself to the point that it's maybe having a, a negative impact on your health, then it might be time to step back and, you know, take a look at what the root issue might be. So, um, and I think we're also hearing so much more about the social determinants of health, um, which are things like safe housing, reliable transportation, systemic racism and discrimination, educa- educational opportunities and employment. Um, and we know, according, again, to the World Health Organization, those can account for 30 to 50 percent of health outcomes. Um, so when I came into you know, school for nutrition and my career in nutrition, I really had this perspective of I've got to help um, people learn the important information. And if they know that information, then their lives are going to be improved. But, but and I still think that is true. I still think we want to know the right information. Um, but over time, my perspective has kind of widened um, in terms mm-hmm. of how many factors influence health and that often it's not really a knowledge barrier um, or a knowledge deficit, I'm sorry, um, a knowledge deficit that's like a barrier to health or wellness. Um, but just we read, lead these, you know, complex lives. Yeah, I totally agreed. And like, um, I think that is one thing that, throughout my studies and time in this field. And I think the social determinants of health is something that really kind of um, became a bedrock for me in this, partly through my cross-cultural studies background too. Like it just so deeply connects to that piece um, that, um, yeah, it's just, 
that aspect alone, not to even mention like all the physiological things that are happening with nutrition, but just mm-hmm. this, the, the reality of how complex social aspects are to this conversation. I mean, we really do take for granted how much like, um, you know, our food habits can be driven by the culture of our family. Um, just the family dynamic itself. It could be driven by, um, other cultural aspects. I mean, obviously like the Southern United States has a different food culture than California Mm -hmm. (laughs) or from, and it's not that there aren't some things that cross over that are a part of the Western diet, but there are like distinctives, just even like state to state. Um, you talk about barbecue, like it's a big deal in certain states. And, um, you know, like those things um, are special, they're unique, and um, they really do impact some things. And then, uh, yeah, it's, I think people take it for granted how complicated and complex the conversation surrounding nutrition in any, like, form really is, Um, whether you're talking about fad diets, whether you're talking about clinical things um, with nutrition, whether you're talking about just like cultural aspects, I mean, you can go really deep in any of those areas. So yeah, yeah. And I would say, like, I like that you brought that up too. Can you hear me still? Okay. Um, I like that you brought up the social determinants of health in regard to this topic because, um, and it wasn't something I thought to do. So I, I really do appreciate that. Like, because it does deeply connect to this. I mean, we just think about like, how many times have you been in a workspace or in a school setting or something like that? Somebody picks up some sort of diet and it's the best thing that has ever happened. I can't tell you how many times, like, you know, how, how often I've been on Facebook and it's like, oh, now this person's doing that diet. Now that person's doing that diet. And it's just, mm-hmm. um, yeah. And they're so, excited and they want to share with you and they're feeling maybe like hopeful or, or maybe the first week or two has been going well. And they, they, you know, they, they want everybody to know and they're seeking some of that like kind of community. I mean, historically, I think, um, we've definitely like bonded over food people, people particularly probably like female identifying folks have, bonded over things like dieting um, and participating in diets. Um, you know, people have been dieting for a long time, but I think over in, in more recent years, uh, this speaks to something you were mentioning earlier, I think, where we've shifted to this more of like a wellness culture where people, you know, maybe in the 1980s, right? So I said I'm 40, so that's just kind of like my time periods I'm thinking about and that might not resonate with everybody right Um, but I'm thinking you know things in the 80s and 90s were like South Beach diet Atkins diet um, and those like everybody's parents were doing those you know when I was younger it seemed like something everyone was doing and they were talking about it Um, and I I remember doing the South Beach diet (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> you know, um, and people talked about it, right? And it was a thing. Yeah. And people do still talk about, you know, we'll hear people talking or posting about doing something like keto or whatnot. But I think even what some of our 
you know, younger, like maybe like Gen Z folks are experiencing too, is this idea of like, you'll hear, um, you know, younger folks talk about the like that girl trend. You can only get this feeling from a thug. You can only get this feeling from a thug. Tears falling and it's licking you. Um, and again, I'm speaking as kind of an outsider on this one because it's it's not my trends. But but you know that girl is always drinking her water and doing her her workout and eating healthy food, and she's not on a diet. This is just how she prefers to be, you know. Mm-hmm. So it's almost like this like slightly insidious um, thing where you're not you're not actively dieting. It's just wellness through the lens of also appearing a certain way, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. And so it seems like it's been a, a more like complex evolution of, of how people do participate and, and bond with each other over these areas. Um, like I said, you go into your, your work environment or maybe um, a faith community or your friends and that's things that people talk about. And we, we bond by talking about things like our bodies and sometimes making negative or disparaging comments about our bodies. Um, there's a mm-hmm. wonderful researcher at UGA named Annalisa Arroyo, and she does amazing research um, on multi-generational communication about um, about bodies. So basically looking at, you know, how grandmothers influence the mother influences the daughter, you know, and it, it, it scopes down like three, it just three or four. Down. Yes. How, how one spoke about things and what they did and what their daughter observed and how that impacts, you know, her daughter and her daughter. Um, and she's just really wonderful. And her research is, is so interesting and just speaks to the complexity mm. Um of, of what we experience, but, but experiencing that again, in, in your work setting, in your school setting at home, in your faith community, in your neighborhood. Um, I think it's natural. We want to kind of bond and talk about things that we're excited about. Mm -hmm. Um, but it can have a negative impact because we might only hear, you know, um, I bet I'm, I'm, I won't do this. I promise, (laughs) but I might post about some kind of diet. I started and how I'm down 20 pounds. You might not hear anything from me again until nine months later. So what you might be left with is, well, I saw on Facebook that Beth did XYZ diet and she lost, you know, X amount of pounds. Um, but you might not have the follow up on, you know, did that actually work out? Was right. Beth able to stick with it? You know, that kind of thing. Yeah. Getting a partial picture. Yeah. So, okay. So given partial picture. So let's. <laughs> talk about some of the specific things that are out there right now that people are following. And there's actually what I find interesting is, um, and maybe this is the place to also talk about like research. When we say research based versus something that has been researched, (laughs) what's the difference? Because, um, just because something has been researched does not mean it is like something sound to follow. It could have been researched because um, like it was, they, they wanted to prove it wasn't sound to follow. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So things being research based. um, That's really, that's a complex question as well. (laughs) So, I mean, probably anybody who has read anything about nutrition research knows that um, a big challenge for 
nutrition research and, and research on dieting and things like that. Specifically, a big challenge is that as humans, we are able to lead relatively long and complex lives. And, you know, we talked about things like social determinants of health that can impact our health. Um, and we have research that looks at health outcomes that are nutrition related from like preconception um, until death. Um, so we don't eat the same foods every day. Um, and th that effect can really maybe also be watered down in research when we don't know what all of the possible relationships are. Or we might know what all of the possible relationships are, but we don't know what what's driving that relationship. You know, what's, what's um, correlation and what's causation. Okay, so causation and correlation are pretty important to understand. And I found this really cute video from Thomas Jefferson University's Center for Teaching and Learning to help us understand it a little bit better. If you look at the stats alone, eating ice cream and murders in New York are positively correlated. This means that the more ice cream sold per person, the number of murders increases. Vanilla bean never seems so scary, right? Before you stop eating ice cream sundaes to save innocent lives, think about it. Correlation as a statistic doesn't explain how or why the relationship between ice cream and murder exists. It simply shows that it does. Causation makes an even bolder assumption and says that a change in the number of chocolate cones sold will cause a change in the number of people who meet their unfortunate end. This is clearly a big leap. A well-designed experiment will rule out other factors that could be related. So you must ask yourself, what's another variable at play? It turns out that temperature was also correlated with both ice cream sales and murders because the numbers for both spike during the summer months. When it's warm outside, people simply get out of the house more. They're on summer break or vacation and want a cold delicious treat. Kids hang out unsupervised more. It just so happens that the Freddy Kruegers of the world also get out more during the summer. Before you jump to a cause and effect relationship when a correlation is found, look at how the data was collected and consider other related factors. And go ahead, eat that pint of Rocky Road. Okay, so let's maybe not eat that whole pint of ice cream, but we can enjoy it in moderation. So when something is research-based, you know, that nutrition research can really run the gamut from like cellular studies where we're using, you know, labs and Petri dishes, to um, using animal models where an animal like a rat or a mouse is the subject rather than a human, or we could do observational studies where we're looking at um, like large groups of people and seeing what their, their habits are and their outcomes over time, or what we kind of consider the gold standard of the randomized control trial where we're actually, you know, blinding the participant and the researcher and, and enacting an experiment or a change. Um, you know, so something when it comes to something like fad diets, you know, our topic today, um, weight loss or weight management, something that we really run into with nutrition research over and over is that we don't have strong research that supports the, the effectiveness of dieting for long-term weight loss. Um, part of the mm -hmm. reason for that is because, um, you know, studies tend to be relatively short, like six months or less. Um, so we might know how it works for about six months. But after that, um, frequently there's a lot of attrition where people drop out of the studies. Um, they don't want to keep doing it. <laughs> and to think about that, if somebody, you know, if somebody's participating in a research study, um, they're probably pretty motivated to do so. Maybe they really want to be part of the body of research or maybe they're incentivized in some way or getting compensated in some way. Maybe, maybe they're getting all their food provided, you know, for the duration of the study or mm -hmm. something like this. But um, at any rate, we think they're probably pretty motivated 
to be part of that research. So um, I like to kind of step back and think, well, if those people have trouble sticking with that diet longer than six months, and that's a barrier to us knowing <laughs> how the diet impacts us longer term, well, why would the rest of us really be, you know, all that? What would like, motivate us? to? Yeah, why would, why would we be sticking with it long term? Um, and I yeah. think one other thing to think about in terms of being research-based, um, and again, kind of going back to as something I've noticed in, you know, how my kind of professional perspective has changed over time, going from a very, um, you know, clinical guideline driven um, sort of, it's still clinical and guideline driven, but, you know, we're guidelines for everything. And if there's not a guideline, you know, <laughs> I think um, while having that research backed evidence-based, um, evidence-based for nutrition policies and recommendations is very important. I think the lived experience of people is also really important. Um, so we might see typically in research, this would be documented as like case studies or in clinical practice, it might be the experiences of patients or clients or even the clinical judgment of a practitioner. So like maybe a gastroenterologist might have so much experience working with a certain condition that they tend to have a certain intervention based on the experiences they've had with their patients, even if that's not what the, there's not a larger guideline to that. So just to say that when it comes to new or emerging areas of nutrition, we might not have a really robust body of research on the topic. So, you know, we know the basics of nutrition and like cardiovascular health, right? Um, we can go to heart.org and find out all about that or dietary guidelines. Um, but when it comes to like less studied topics, so maybe like things like Lyme disease, fibromyalgia, irritable bowel syndrome, you know, I can say that, you know, I have nutrition expertise based on my education and my experience, um, but I'm not the expert on every person out there's nutrition. I'm not the expert on every person's nutrition who's been like a patient or client of mine. Um, so that person really brings their own wisdom and, and lived experience um, to the table and we work together. And, and then I think also sometimes, you know, these communities of people with common concerns will come together. And we can see that again in like social media communities and things like that. And and they might note some similarities in things that they've tried and what their outcomes have been um, before there's a drive to have a very strong um, body of evidence on the topic. And so that's something that I've noticed, you know, yes, we want things that are evidence-based and we want to look to that research wherever possible. Um, but I never want to diminish the experience that someone's had. You know, I, you know, I hesitate to say this. I shouldn't even say it at all. But like, you know, dietitians, somehow we end up talking about like bowel movements and poop quite a lot, you know. Yeah. <laughs> and so I'm never going to be like, no, you didn't have diarrhea. <laughs> that, you know, there might be there might be an explanation for where it came from or whatnot, but I can't argue with somebody's experience that they personally <laughs> experienced. So maybe yeah. that doesn't necessarily no. land with everybody, but you know, that also doesn't do much for, you know, kind of a, a relationship building and, and again, empowering folks in making their own decisions because there's just a lot of variables out there. So sometimes I think it is really important, especially in some of those more emerging areas or things that are studied less to um, you know, really be receptive to people doing some research on their own and trying new things and just taking an experimental approach when we don't have something strong to offer them that has like a, a robust evidence base. 
All right. How do we define fad diet? Yeah, <laughs> I think coming to an agreement on what a fad diet is would be a great a great point um, to be on the same yes. page. Um, I think there is definitely a negative connotation when you say fad diet, right? There's kind of an implied right. short term. Um, fad diets have been around probably forever. They've been documented for a long time. You know, people have been doing various forms of dieting for hundreds of years. Yeah. Um, you know, things like lower carb diets have been around for hundreds of years. So this isn't as much as, you know, a media <laughs> or a company might want you to think this is brand new information. A lot of it's kind of the same thing running in cycles. Um, yeah. So fads or trends might have a rise in popularity, receive a lot of attention for a while. Yeah. One of the coolest ones that I remember studying um what wasn't cool. It's just like, wow, this has been, this really has been going on for a long time. Um, with some guy in Europe who did like a beer diet or something. And this was like, like in like 400 or something. I mean, it was like a long, long time ago. <laughs> and he just kept growing and his stomach got stuck on like his saddle or something. And it was the end of him. <laughs> like really disturbing um I'll have to look it up I'll look it up and I'll share it with you not surprisingly I had my dates wrong and some other information incorrect about William the Conqueror's fad diet this information is all taken from history.com so here's a little background and a little about his fad diet and the results. According to history.com, William was the illegitimate son of Robert I, Duke of Normandy, by his concubine Arlette. The Duke, who had no other sons, designated William his heir, and with his death in 1035 AD, William became Duke of Normandy at the age of seven. Rebellions were an epidemic during the early years of his reign, and on several occasions, the young Duke narrowly escaped death. By the time he was 20, William had become an able ruler and was backed by King Henry I of France. Henry later turned against him, but William survived the opposition and in 1063 expanded the borders of his duchy into the region of Maine. Fast forward to 1066 AD when King Edward, William's cousin, dies in January. Harold Godwinson is declared king and William disputes it. There's a lot of fighting with other leaders involved, and ultimately William defeats Harold and marches on London on Christmas Day, 1066, and becomes the first Norman king of England. Described as strapping and healthy in his earlier years, William apparently ballooned later in life. It is said that King Philip of France likened him to a pregnant woman about to give birth. According to some accounts, William became so dismayed with his size that he devised his own version of a fad diet, consuming only wine and spirits for a certain period of time, and it didn't work. William died in 1087 AD after his horse reared up during a battle, throwing the king against his saddle pommel so forcefully that his intestines ruptured. An infection set in that killed him several weeks later. As priests tried to stuff William into a stone coffin that proved too small for his bulk, they pushed on his abdomen, causing it to burst. Mourners supposedly ran for the door to escape the putrid stench. We think about, yeah, we think about things that 
certain things sound a little a little wackier than others, right? So good things I think probably sure. people have heard about, like the cabbage soup diet or the grapefruit diet, yes. or um, kind of along the lines of one you're just mentioning. I remember reading about one from the 70s that was like the wine and cigarettes diet, where basically you didn't eat um, anything all day and then you're supposed to like drink a bottle of wine at night. And I think we can step back and the the cigarettes were supposed (laughs) to help control the hunger cravings. (laughs) Yeah. Like we could probably step back at this point and say, Hmm, we don't need a really robust definition of healthy to think that's probably not going to kind of meet, meet our, our definition. But, um, you know, there, there's some red flags, you know, if we're looking for a fad diet, um, so first off, it might pretend to, or it might promise to be like a quick fix or a simple cure with like these big, you know, exciting results. Um, maybe another major red flag would be restricting or eliminating entire food groups. Um, maybe something that promotes unlimited quantities of something like maybe uh-huh. maybe your guy, the horseback rider on the beer diet could have as much beer as he wanted as long as he didn't have any of those carrots. <laughs> Um, or it might right. be eating foods in certain pairings or combinations. Um, you know, having rigid menus or like restrictive meal plans where it's not individualized to the person could also be something that's aligned with a fad diet. Um, anything where they're not including physical activity as a central component, I think would be a bit of a red flag where they say you can just kind of follow this plan and your weight will, you know, melt away or whatnot. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we could also look for things that are promoted by. <laughs> celebrities or famous personalities. Um, they might be somebody who has a medical background. Um, I know a lot of times we'll see um, folks in, in kind of different areas of medicine promoting nutrition related uh, products and, and, you know, people profit from things in different ways. So I think that's an important thing to think about as we are in more like um, an increasingly online world too, is that you might not be sure what somebody's selling you. <laughs> You might not be sure how they're profiting from it, you know, for mm-hmm. somebody selling you a book or supplements, um, but it might also be like YouTube video views and clicks and shares and things like that, that you're not as consciously aware that they are benefiting um, from promoting something. So I think then in contrast to a fad diet, we can think about like a healthy eating pattern, which um we can define that in the United States Dietary Guidelines. So basically, that's including a variety of vegetables, fruits, mm. especially whole fruits, grains, trying to include whole grains as well, um, dairy or dairy alternatives, um, plant oils, variety of protein foods. So we don't have to go into, you know, an entire thing on the dietary guidelines. But I think it's important to think about, you know, that in terms of kind of contrasting why something um, may may not really qualify as being a, a, a balanced or healthy eating pattern. Um, and I think it's important to say, like, you know, the dietary guidelines are pretty flexible within, you know, their what they lay out. So people with food allergies, people with different medical conditions, different personal or cultural food preferences, so whether that's, you know, needing to eat kosher or needing to eat vegetarian or vegan, you know, all of those people can meet their nutrition needs with than those kind of healthy eating parameters. Um, and in contrast, like when we have a fad diet, we don't tend to see that flexibility to the individual. Yeah. Um, so I feel like those are great parameters to shape the conversation in. Um, and I, I do think it's important to note, like, 
part of the reason fad diets are attractive is because you do get often you do get results that you want initially. And it's important to note it's initially, um, it's, it tends to be, um, something that often it's hard to stick with and it's hard to maintain those results. Um, and there actually have been a lot of study around that, right? Like Mm -hmm. what we know from studying different um, things like there are some commonalities, no matter what the fad diet is. Um, if it's super restrictive, like it gets to be something that is hard for people to stick with. And oftentimes we know that the weight not only comes back, it often comes back plus some. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. We do have kind of an increasing interest in that area of research and this idea of like what you're referring to would be called weight cycling, where this idea that we do tend to lose weight at the beginning um, of a diet. And then when a person, you know, goes off of that diet um, or strays away from it, they tend to regain the weight they lost and then some. Um, so, you know, the National Institutes of Health has a, a statement on about relating to dieting, you know, that says one to two thirds of weight loss within a year. Um, I'm sorry, one, one to two thirds of the weight that someone loses while dieting tends to be regained within a year and almost all is regained within five years. Um, so the sustainability of some of those things is definitely something to think about if someone's thinking about making some dietary changes, you know, is this something that in the long term is, is going to be sustainable? Um, and helpful for me. Thanks for joining us for this first part of Fad Diets. Next time we'll be diving into a few of the diets that are really popular right now or have been popular in the past few years. Um, Hopefully we've given you enough information before stepping into some lifestyle changes that you might be planning as a New Year's resolution. Um, But make sure to subscribe and you'll be one of the first to find out when it is posted in January for part two. The views of us expressed in the Sino podcast are the speaker's own and do not necessarily represent the views of and opinions of the University of Georgia or the guest organizations and board employers. The material and information presented here is for general information purposes only. The University of Georgia name, as well as those guest organizations, and all forms of radiations are the property of its owner and its use to not imply endorsement of or opposition to any specific organization, product, or service. Here the Facts of Life. Thanks for joining us. Check out our website at factslife.extension.uga.edu. That's F-A-C-S of life.extension.uga.edu.